As many of you know, about a month ago, I lost uh, my beautiful sister. And uh, on top of the sadness, these feelings that we call grief contain disappointment. And maybe disillusionment might be a word that we feel towards the future. Everybody in this room, I'm sure at some point or other, has been in that situation or felt these feelings if you feel grief. The realization that the future is not going to be as you had planned or hoped or dreamed, that things are going to be different, and that disappointment is a tough thing to handle. Um, my sister passed away from cancer. Cancer had invaded her body. During that time of her sickness, I asked God to fix it, to heal her. We all have human problems, and we have come to God and asked Him to fix it. It could be an issue of health, as it was with my dear sister. Uh, it could be money. I don't have enough to pay the bills. Lord, you need to fix this. It could be you missed your airline's flight. I mean, it could be uh, anything at all where... As a human being, you run into a problem. Maybe the weather presents a problem. You have all these plans or these dreams. I planted a garden and now it dried out and my vegetables are dying. Please fix it. Send some rain. <clears throat> this is a typical prayer, and I think all of us, every human being has prayed this prayer, asking God to fix some problem that they have. If it's not a problem, it might be a person. I can't understand what my boss wants out of me. They're impossible to please. Or maybe this particular friend of mine, uh, their wife or their husband is very abusive in their relationship. Or maybe it's a control issue or whatever. And so we, or we watch a, somebody who's destroying their life through drugs or some, some such thing. And we say, Lord, fix them. Not fix it, but fix them. And we, and we pray, seeking and asking and hoping that God will fix this problem or this person. And sometimes He answers that prayer in a most gracious way. And every week somebody comes to me and says, I want to tell you about some miracle that's happened. I want to tell you about a fix that God provided for this problem. But I would say also every week, I talk to someone who's struggling because it seems as if, as in the case with my sister, God is choosing not to fix this problem, at least according to my human tradition or my human definition of fixing. And so we have this prayer asking God to fix it based on the logic that I would fix it if I was God. So that's why I feel free to ask Him to do it because I know if I were sitting in His chair, I'd surely fix it. I'd heal this lady of her cancer. We think God should because we would. It's logic. Nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Uh, to, to, I suppose it's impossible for me as a human being to think differently than that. Until or unless. It dawns on me somehow or other that that I am not God in a miniaturized version. 
And God is not David times ten. So we don't necessarily think alike. It would be wonderful if we did. And when I ask him to fix something, because I know I would fix it, if he fixes it, I give him a high five. If he doesn't fix it, I, get, he, I may give him an angry scowl. Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you answer this prayer? Why didn't you fix this person? And, you know, we, we may get disillusioned, we may get angry, we may get hurt, and so forth. Because we're thinking with this logic that says, God should do this because I would do it if I were in His place. If I had the power, if I had the opportunity, I'd surely fix this problem. I'd take this guy out of the picture. He's a problem. I would, you know, we look at the Ukrainian-Russian situation. If I were God, you wouldn't want to be Putin. You just wouldn't want to be. You just wouldn't want to be him. Okay. Perhaps God would do things the way we would do. Perhaps God would do what we would do, and he would fix exactly what we asked him to fix, if his thoughts mirrored our thoughts. The Bible tells us, and this is part of the reason he gave us this book, so we can understand this, that his thoughts do not mirror our thoughts. And that he's not us times ten. I want to get to Jesus and Jerusalem and the palms on and the palm trees, but I need to start here for a moment. <clears throat> because this idea that the Lord just seemed to put place on my mind has just kind of grown and I, I just need to <clears throat> weave it into this story. <clears throat> but I have to start off with this reminder that the reason God doesn't fix things as we would fix them is because he doesn't, he's in a different dimension. He does not see things. God operates in a different dimension. And that's, again, part of the reason that he gave us this book, to explain that to us. And I want you to understand it and remind you of it so that we don't get angry and hurt and disillusioned so much when he doesn't fix what we think he should fix. Because he's told us right off from the start, I don't see things like you see it. I've created you in my image, yes. But there's a whole different dimension to my being than I ever put into your image. There's a whole different capability. There's a whole different point of view. There's a whole different purpose. I have universes to manage. I have a plan to prepare for. You're not in on any of that. And so I see things quite differently. And I suppose this is the classic verse to point that out in Isaiah. Maybe we could just read it together. You can see it. Can you read this with me? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is in Isaiah 55. Um, That's quite a contrast, as the sky is higher than the ground, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Quite a wide stretch that he uses for contrast there. And I want to remind us, In saying that, he's pointing out that, again, God's ways are just not our ways that just happen to be bigger, a bigger variety. I once heard a guy say, you know, a megachurch, he was a pastor of a church of a couple thousand people, and he said a megachurch is no different than a small church, it's just bigger, that's all. Well, I'm saying God's universe 
Is, that's not true of God's universe compared to ours. He's not just bigger. He's different. And that's what he's saying here. This is not just a, a, a lump sum that is bigger than the individual parts. The heavens are different from the earth. The sky is different from the ground. A bird cannot fly on the ground. A plant cannot grow in the sky. So there's a difference in substance. There's a difference in essence. There's a difference in possibility between the sky and the earth because there's a difference in purpose. He made the sky for one reason. He made the ground for another reason. So the Lord is saying, look, you can't, it's not oranges and apples. It's earth and it's sky. So understand that I'm here and you're here. And my thinking is not like yours. I just don't share that same perspective. And so therefore, the things that you think got to be fixed, and got to be fixed now, and got to be fixed this way, are not how I see it. I just don't share that same... And I want you to, under, I want you to get that. I want you to get that uh, dawn on you. That, um, so you don't get so frustrated, and you don't get so angry, or, or hurt if... I allow your wonderful friend to undergo a, a devastation or a, even a death. So I'm simply saying to kind of set the stage for heading towards Jesus in Jerusalem is that God's ways are not just bigger, perhaps they're bigger, perhaps they're smaller, but they're better, they're different. And, and His ways are significantly, uh, perhaps significantly weird for us. It could be that we, if we were judging by human logic, would say at times God is certifiably insane or crazy. I'm saying, if we only went by human logic, that we would say, uh, on the principles of my logic, what God has chosen to do doesn't add up. Um, and so, the... The, the, the reality of this, the, that God's ways are higher and His thoughts are higher, is He can do things we cannot do. He can think of things that we cannot think of. He can, he can you know, remember the old song, God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. God, any mountains you can't tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible. That's right. He does the things others cannot do. He's, he's, he's in, on a different wavelength. And sometimes, it seems to us, kind of nuts that He would go about it in a certain way. And we just need to understand His way is different. But it's better. Um, <clears throat> in the book of Judges, I'm going to go through the Wild West period of the Judges in the Old Testament just for a couple minutes as an illustration it just dawned on me as I was reading some of these stories, and there's a number of them, and these kind of stories are all through the Bible, and not just through the Bible. If we could take a few hours and we could go around and tell the stories of our lives, we would see things just as strange and just as amazing as what happened to these people. I don't have time to just read these stories. I wish I did, but I'm going to start in the third chapter of the book of Judges, the very last verse of the third chapter. There's a guy, he rates one whole verse in the Bible. This is the only mention of the dude in the whole book. His name was Shamgar. And 
It says that God used him, he raised him up as a leader, as a judge, as a deliverer for the Israelite people, who at that time were being oppressed either, uh, it was like it were round robin, it was either the Philistines or the Midianites or the Ishmaelites or the uh, Canaanites or the Amalekites um, uh, or the, uh, anyway, there was just a whole lot of, of warfare going on. And in, and in this time of this guy, the enemy was particularly the Philistines. And it says, old Shamgar went out and fought the Philistines. Now, you would think, you know, you remember the story of Goliath and David, and Goliath was a Philistine, and you know they had armor, and they had swords, and they had, tells about his helmet, and all of this iron that the man walked around with, he was, he was uh, representative of the Philistine army, because they had the technology of iron. So you would think, all right, Shamgar is going to have to take like a, a heat-seeking missile or something to overcome the army of the Philistines. And it says, uh, with God's help, he used a, a cattle prod. A cattle prod. And he killed 600 of them. Ox goad. I mean, it's a stick of wood, maybe with a, some, some, some rocks or bones or something. I mean, this is, no, this is no weapon, my point. A cattle prod is not a weapon, unless you're a cow, then you might think it is. It is not a piece of military equipment. It is nothing designed for taking out large, mean, fierce, strong soldiers. But... God's ways are different in our ways. And so it says God raised up Shamgar and Shamgar went out and with a cattle prod killed 600 enemy troops. The next chapter, story about a lady named Deborah. She had a sidekick named Barak and they were fighting the Canaanite people in that particular time. This was actually uh, the, what I'll call the first battle of Armageddon because it was, it was there in the valley of Megiddo. And uh, Armageddon means or Armageddon means the val- means the mountain of, of Megiddo. So it was a long time ago, and there was this battle. And uh, this Canaanite army, it says there were ten thousand of them. I'm sorry, they had uh, back back it up. The Canaanites had chariots. They had uh, the technology, and then they had the the the, um, the general was a guy named Sisera of the of the Canaanite army. And uh, he had 900 chariots to fight with. I mean, that's, the Israelites never had chariots. They never even substantially had horses. And uh, so the, the, there was a crisis, and a guy named Barak, the leader of the Israelite forces, went to see Deborah, who God had raised up as the judge, as the leader. And he said, what, what can we do? And she said, get 10,000 troops and go up high up on, the mount, on top of Mount Tabor, and God will deliver these Canaanites into your hands. But because, and he said, I won't go unless you go with me. And she said, well, then God will give the victory to a woman. And when you're reading the text, you think she's talking about herself. But, you know, Barak says, I don't care. I just want you with me. So they went out for this battle. And uh, there was a Canaanite family, kind of a lone family, lived in the area. And the guy's name was Eber or Heber. And they were friends with the king of the Canaanites. And 
he kind of gave him the signal and said, the Israelites are up on Mount Tabor, they're hiding. And so the Canaanite army came, the Israelites came rushing down the mountain and there was a battle and it was a lot of confusion, you know. But the, once they got on the level uh, territory, the Canaanites had the advantage with the, with the chariots. However, it didn't go too well. The Canaanites were getting slaughtered and the enemy's general, a guy named Sisera, decides to regroup and he takes off. He retreats. He's got a chest full of medals. He's got 900 war chariots under his command. He's got, this is his, his native territory. He's got a lot, to go, a, lot going, a lot going for him. And he comes to this tent where Heber and his family live. He's so tired. He's just desperate. And he, Heber's wife comes to the door and Sisera says, Can I take, I'm exhausted. Can I get a drink? Could, and and he, she, she invites him in and he says, I'm so exhausted. Could I just take a nap? Would you, would you stand at the door? And if anybody comes along looking for me, just say, Nobody here. She said, Yeah, I'll be glad to, be glad to. She gives him a drink. He lays down to take a nap. And it says, while he's sleeping, that Heber's wife, her name was Yael. Yael went, you know, they lived in tents, so they had pegs to, to fasten down the corners of the tent. And this is just a hammer, a mallet. And she just snuck up to this sleeping general. And as she leaned over his head, she just drove the tent peg right through the side of his head. Now, just a reminder, uh, this isn't how I would do it. <laughs> but this is how God did it. God's ways are not our ways. And a woman, as Deborah had said, got the credit for the battle. And, she, and it, says, it says in the next chapter, chapter 5, that they came in. And the, the, inner, the Israelite army came along looking for him. And Eber's wife stood at the door and said, he's in here, you can come in to see him. And so they come in here, you know, like SWAT team, because they knew that the enemy general, and he's lying dead with his head nailed to the floor. Um, who would dream? Who would think you would go about it that way? I mean, why, how could it be possible that you would take on the leader, the planner, the organizer of this vast army with a, a, a lady with a hammer and a, and a wooden stake. But that's how it happened. There's another story in chapter 7, the story of Gideon. You're familiar with that. But it specifically says that they had no swords when these 300 men went after this host of Midianites, that soldiers that were camped. They had in their left hand a, a, a a pitcher, in the right hand they had a, t a trumpet, and the left hand had a pitcher over a, 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 a torch. Now, if you've got a torch in your one hand and a trumpet in the other hand, you don't have any sword. You don't have any hand to use a sword. In fact, the beginning of chapter 8, some of the Israelites came to Gideon, and, and really it says roughly criticized him, because they said, you know, we're spoiling for a fight, we've got swords, and we could fight those Midianites, and you go out there with a bunch of pitchers and trumpets, and you... Scare them off before we even get to... But that's what happened. Gideon didn't have a sword, but he jumped up and with his pitcher and his trumpet and he said, The sword of the Lord! And boom, they took off. Because God's ways are different and, and higher and, and just strange. As I said, it seems crazy. Chapter, uh, chapter 9, there's a story about 
uh, Gideon's son. His name was Abimelech. And he's, he's, having a, he's, he's got a gang of cutthroats around him. And he's just terrorizing the countryside. And he goes to one town and he burns it and he goes to another town. And the citizens run up into the guard tower. And Abimelech comes up and he's going to burn them out. And he's dragging brush up against the tower because he's going to set this whole thing on fire. He has a, he has a wicked heart. He's going to set this thing on fire and burn these people alive. And it says an elderly lady who's way up there in the tower somehow came up with a, 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 a grinding stone. I, I don't know. It couldn't probably be this big around. She couldn't lift it. But a, a stone that was used in their grinding mills. And at random, she throws it down. And it cracks Abimelech's head. It, it just... He got stoned, you know. He got... It just got, it took him out. My point, the point we, you know, there's many stories like that. The point is, when it comes to God, when it comes to God, uh, I guess I should have put that up there back a while. When it comes to God, it doesn't matter how big your military is. It don't matter how many tanks or missiles or bombs or anything else. If God's on the side of someone then maybe through a very unconventional way, they're going to they're gonna get to where he wants him to go. They're going to achieve a victory. In fact, here's some scripture verses. This is the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. He says, it's not by might. It's not by the normal, logical, human methods like, well, you fight an army, you fight a battle with an army. God says, not always, not necessarily. I could fight a battle with a, with a mallet. I could fight a battle with a millstone. I could fight a battle with all kinds of things that you would have never thought about because the, it, is my, it is my spirit. In fact, he says, what do, you, what, do, what do you got in front of you, Zerubbabel? You got a mountain? Well, I'll tell you what. We could just flatten the mountain and then you wouldn't even have the problem. God has no limit. He specializes in things thought impossible. Here's the New Testament version. Paul says, look, we're in the world. We live in Greencastle. But we do not, as believers, feel that all our battles have to be fought the way of the worldly wisdom. The way which worldly wisdom would tell us it has to be fought. We can demolish strongholds through divine power. Not through armaments, for example. And it's just, just I'm just using... The, the stories in the Old Testament as a, as a type of example. I'm not talking about military. That's not my point. Although, I did want to just stop and say this in passing, that God says someday, you think that's strange that a tent peg would outmaneuver a chariot and a spear and a bow? Someday, everybody's heart is going to catch the vision that I have, the Lord says, so much They'll take their guns and melt them down and make garden hose out of them because they can accomplish more with that. And everybody will see it someday. And it'll be wonderful. But that's all, that's in the future. And they're not going to study war anymore, as the old Negro spiritual song says. Now, we come, we come to this story where the Lord Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. And what you have there, as I have in your sermon notes, is a, is a clash of priorities and principles and purposes. You have, 
you know, the Jews had a culture of religion. They wanted to have their ceremonies and they wanted to have their sacrifices. Jesus wasn't interested in the culture of religion. He wanted to bring God's presence and God's power into every human heart. Sacrifices or no sacrifices. Temple or no temple. He didn't need any of that. It could be used. It had been used. But it wasn't the heart of God's way. Because the Jewish leaders were hostile to him, then this thing became a showdown. And so on the one side, you have this tradition um, backed up, by the way, with military, because the Romans were there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says, you know, one of these legions, and the Bible says there was a legion of soldiers there, one of these legions was 5,000 fighting men and 5,000 support personnel. So 10,000 soldiers in the fortress that's there in the temple of Jerusalem. That's a lot of firepower. And then you have this man coming down the mountain, a one-float parade, I mean, when you think about it, just the image of you have the Jewish leaders backed up by the Roman military, and then you have this, this, this one guy on a donkey. And kids are dancing around, and it, you know, it just reminds me of kind of maybe singing some folk songs, and, and everybody is just, everybody's just thrilled. This, 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 this figure comes riding in on a donkey, and it's, it's, it's just incredible. What could he do? I mean, I mean, it's, it's like a, a cattle prod against the whole army of Philistines. What could that do? It couldn't accomplish anything. It's, it's you know, it's, um, it's about this much against a, a heat-seeking missile. Um, it just don't seem like it can do much. But... Jesus was on a mission. And God's ways are not our ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. And His methods are not our methods. And the Lord said, listen, a long time ago, the Lord knew that the real enemy was not the, the Jewish leaders and the real enemy was not the Roman soldiers. It was that ancient serpent called the devil. And a long time ago, the Lord had said to him, someday... You're going to grab me by the heel and pinch, but I'm going to drive a stake through your head. I will crush your head. The Lord said that. Clear back in the Garden of Eden. And that's what Jesus was on the mission. And so he wasn't worried because hidden in the folds of his robe, Jesus had a tent peg. It was the cross. It was a stick of wood, I guess you could say. But it was, it was what... God had chosen to use so unconventional, so impotent, so useless it seemed like that people even laughed at him when he pulled it out. Just as if we had been able to watch Yael in the tent. When, when we saw her sneaking around and pulling her tent, her mallet, and, and approaching this burly general, four-star general laying on the floor, we'd have probably laughed. We'd have probably said, who does she think she is? This guy's going to wake up and snap his fingers and four armed guards will take her head off. We would have said, who does she think, what does she think she can do? Just like people said, what does he think he can do? Riding a donkey, 
couple kids jumping around, people excited, cutting off some tree branches and waving. I mean, it, 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 it all seemed like, like it, was, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't accomplish anything. But the weapon that Jesus was bringing was the old rugged cross. And with that, he would win the battle for our souls. And he, he would deal with death blow to the enemy of our souls. And all our hope for eternal life is in an instrument that's not even a weapon. And all the hope of our eternal life is in a man that appeared to do nothing more than just die. It's all it seemed like he did. Didn't really, I mean, it, it, it seems like kind of at the last nerve, at the last moment, Yael would just lose her nerve and she just didn't do anything. She stood there and, 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 and looked at the sleeping general and, and all, that's what it seems like with Jesus. I mean, it's like he just gave up and, and he said, you, you, you want to kill me? I'd say, just do it. But it was the plan. God's ways are not our ways. Um, and so my point is that all this was a miracle. And in your life, don't get discouraged when things, when things don't get fixed the way you think. When you ask God to send in the troops and, and He sends in Jesus on a donkey, don't get discouraged. Because every one of His ways, every one of His thoughts, every one of His plans are leading to something that is a miracle. Um, would you take a moment and pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, there's a lot for us to think through and a lot for us to trust in. And there's a lot of room for us to bring ourselves to this cross, this secret weapon by which you overcame the enemy in the most unlikely of manners. You brought a... You brought a tent peg to a sword fight. And, and how, it has, how it has accomplished for us the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of life evermore. We, we bow to ponder and to praise You that Your ways are higher than our ways. We would have started World War III if we could have in that moment. We would have defended Jesus and we'd have taken out those 10,000 Roman soldiers and we'd had a massive moment. And nothing would have been changed when it was all done because we, can, we, we just can think only like humans. That's our limit. We praise You that you, Your ways are not our ways. So let us trust you and let us come to the cross where there is ever always room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just sing.